Glenna Kraus was murdered on January 6, 1979, and this is their stepmother and one of the jurors' stories. Jane initiated the recordings for this podcast to bring her mother's story to light and to have her remembered. Jane contacted her sisters, whom we heard from last week. For 40 years, Jane has been haunted by the tragic murder of her mother, but also by the incomprehensible sentence the killer received. Six months in jail and a $1,000 fine. After admitting to her murder, he pushed his way into Glenna's home, picked up a statue, and bludgeoned her to death. Glenna's daughter, Patty, was on the phone with her mother while the attack took place by her boyfriend. I reached out to Patty several times to include her in this podcast as well, but to no avail. This week's episode is an interview with the kid's stepmother, Lois, and one of the original jurors from Glenna Krause's trial, Rose. Morning the Murdered is a podcast I created because in 1999, a friend of mine was murdered. My name is Kelly, and I am your host. I saw the effects that murder have on family members, and I wanted to give a voice to the loved ones of murdered victims. Every week, I interview the family member of a murder victim. So please be sure to tune in every Thursday to hear their stories on Morning the Murdered podcast. I begin this week's episode with the interview I had with Lois. Hello. Hi, Lois. It's Kelly Culling from Morning the Murdered podcast. Hi, Kelly. Good morning to you. Good morning to you as well. Lois lives in Colorado and says how thankful she is for the beautiful weather and how gorgeous her days are. The children ranged in age from 11 to 21 when they came into each other's lives. What was your relationship like with the children? I never had confrontations or anything like that. And their father and I did uh, date for several years before we got married. And as a result of that, our marriage didn't come as any surprise, you know, to any of them. Did you ever meet Patty's boyfriend? We, to my knowledge, my husband even never met the man. I, if he did, I can't, I don't recall ever thinking that he had met him. I definitely did not. I do recall at some point in December, Patty letting her dad I think she was probably very embarrassed about her about her relationship with him because she knew her dad wouldn't approve of him and so she stayed pretty clear of us during that time and definitely did not bring him around to our house prior to his attack physically attacking Patty I really don't know you know anything about his personality and his behavior and that sort of thing uh, but once once we were aware that he had attacked Patty and we from talking to Jane apparently I 
I did not realize until just this past month when we've been ta- rehashing some of the old details, I did not realize that he had been physically abusive to Patty multiple times. And I do remember my husband talking with their mother about uh, they needed to get Patty out of the area to really make sure she was safe and they were going to fly her to either one of her sisters who lived somewhere else to to stay for a while just to get her out of out of danger christmas came and it was going to happen after christmas the last I recall, I think they were going to send her to uh, Arizona, where Jane was living at the time. The devastating murder occurred too soon after Christmas for their plan to get Patty out of town to come to fruition. Lois remembers that because her husband was on staff at the hospital that Glenna was brought to, once they identified who she was, they called him. When she and her husband arrived at the hospital, Patty was already there. And so what was Patty's state of mind, would you say, in the waiting room? Well, I would say she was just pretty numb. Just, you know, just dumbfounded and and numb. I don't know. I, I don't know that we realized, that Patty and I realized that her mother was not going to make it. I don't know at that point if we realized that, but apparently there had been enough damage done that there was no no way they could save her. She called another boyfriend or a male friend, I should say, to come to come get her. She did not come home with us. I remember that. And did you find that odd, or did you not? Really? Yes, you yes. did. What was your husband's reaction to the fact that it was Patty's boyfriend initially? Well, unfortunately, Patty had, you know, this was not the first time she had been in a relationship with someone that her father disapproved of. And I'm sure her mother, too. I just don't know, you know, I didn't ever talk to her mother about Patty's choice in in men. But I do know, you know, that... We were frequently disappointed, her dad was especially frequently disappointed in the, in the boyfriends that she chose. I'm sure that subconsciously, you know, everybody probably was blaming Patty to a certain extent, although the girls, you know, like to say that they don't blame Patty. I, you know, I think that there was that probably, that feeling that had, had she not gotten involved with Phil, then this wouldn't have happened to their mother. And then the other thing, too, is, yes, he apparently had been physically abusive with Patty more than once. And why didn't she leave? Why did she put up with it? But, you know, the the world is full of women who have stayed and stayed and stayed in abusive relationships. So that's not at all unusual. Immediately, the feel from everyone in the family was that Patty's boyfriend had killed their mother. Immediately afterward, of course, we were all so in trauma, and and everybody was at at our house staying. 
And so I was very, very busy in that, you know, that first week after the, uh, the um, murder occurred. First of all, let me backtrack. Patty eventually did come to the house. You know, I don't recall during those four or five days between the uh, assault and the, uh, and the funeral service, I don't really recall how much she was at the house. She did not stay at the house. All the rest of the kids were there with their, with their respective boyfriends or spouses, um, and we we had people sleeping in you know the dining room, the living room, everywhere. Um, <laughs> but um, I, I, Patty did not stay at the house that much. And what was the feeling? And I remember that disturbed her father. Okay. He thought he thought she should be with the rest of the family all the time. Right. Which... Leaning on and taking support, getting support from each other was very important to him. What was your take on the verdict? I remember my husband calling me from his office, telling me that that had been the verdict. Uh, that they allowed him to plead manslaughter in exchange for his testimony. You know, this is the way I understand it anyway. He was allowed to plead manslaughter, which in my mind means, you know, he admitted he was guilty, um, in exchange for testifying against another prisoner that apparently they wanted they were more interested in getting the the real goods on that prisoner uh, in the murder he had committed. I don't remember the serial killer as, as much as I thought I remembered that he had committed a, a, an equally horrendous crime and why they were more interested in in getting him, I don't remember. Yeah, and that, it just so it was puzzling to you as well. You you found it? Yes, absolutely. We were yes, we were we were just uh, stunned. And your husband as well. He was stunned. Yes. Oh, yes. Lois does not remember her husband being at the trial as Sue does. She also had the impression, as others have, that there was a plea deal in exchange for information on another prisoner. Lois explains that before Jane left, she went through her mother's house and sorted the belongings to be put into storage. At a later date, two of the other siblings went through everything that was in storage to divide it among the five children. Patty had been exhibiting some troubling, rebellious behavior. As a teenager, she had run away from home with some friends and went to live in Florida. Eventually, she left that group of friends and lived with one of her sisters. After some time, she went back home and seemed to be trying to get her life back in order. She got her GED, was in college and working, until she met this unsavory character who wreaked havoc among the Krause children. It was like I couldn't really believe that that I was a part of a situation that was including murder. 
Right. I, you know, I come come from a little town years before, and you know, nothing nothing very dramatic had ever happened in my family. Uh, you know, we we just didn't didn't have too much chaos, <laughs> and I, so it was kind of like every now and then I would think, you know, is this a, is this for real? Is did this really happen? I mean, can this really be uh, now a permanent part of our life? Uh, I I don't think at the time that I really realized what a significant impact this was going to have on the siblings and their relationship with each other. And I probably, without... I mean, if it was a total, complete stranger, it still would have been... They all would have reacted to losing their mother in different ways. But when you then throw in the fact that one of them knew this person, had a relationship with this person, then all that, I think... I'm not saying that the... Let's say the four sisters. I'm not saying the four sisters would have all had beautiful lives together and never had any squabbles. I mean, any four sisters are not probably going to have that kind of idyllic uh, uh, lifestyle. They're all going to have their own personalities and their squabbles over one thing or another. But I think this really did have have um, such a dramatic effect on on their relationships with each other. Their brother alienated himself from the family, including his father, and Lois expressed how hard that was on him. He had a very hard time accepting that his son would not be in his life. He also struggled with how Patty could just disappear and reappear in their lives at random, with no regard for the turmoil and pain that caused them. I definitely think that, that, I mean, in their minds, in all of our minds, there was not any justice done. Right. It just was not done. And Justin, Jr., was intent on on getting this guy. And uh, there were a couple of times when, you know, we were very concerned that he might try to take the law into his own hands and try to to kill Phil. And uh, that was, my husband and I always felt that was part of of the breakdown of their relationship, father-son relationship, because he wanted his dad to provide him with a gun and go with him to get Phil. And my husband, you know, said, no, we can't do that. That's against the law, and I won't, you know, I won't be any part of trying to get justice in that way. And he was very upset with his father that he wasn't willing to help him kill Phil. Long after the fact, my husband and I have lived out here in Colorado for 25 years now. And sometime after we were out here, Justin Jr.'s wife called and told us that she was very concerned that he was on his way to Ohio to try to kill Phil. And my husband got a phone call from a detective in the Dayton area and said that 
the the wife had called him them and told them that she was afraid her husband was coming to kill this man. So the detective actually went to Phil's house and told him that that there was some concern that he might be in danger and that he they were alerting him that he should be careful. Long after the fact, Justin was obviously still seeking revenge, I guess you'd say. And we were just kind of dumbfounded by it. Uh, and I recall the, the detective said, well, you can be sure that this Phil will be looking over his shoulder the rest of his life because, you know, he, we, we made it clear to him that this fellow hasn't forgotten and blames him for the death of his mother and is out to get him. This was a tough time for Lois and her husband. They wanted nothing but the best for all of the children. Watching him struggle must have been so worrisome. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate well, Kelly, it. Kelly, I thank you for making it more comfortable for me. Thank you very much. And, uh, we, of course, we're all, you know, if this is, is going to be helpful to any of the girls, then it will have been worth what, any of the time we all spent on it, that's for sure. And nice to have visited with you this morning. Absolutely. Have a nice weekend now. Thank you, and you too. Enjoy your beautiful day. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. The final interview for this episode is with Rose, a juror from the 40-year-old court case. Hi, Rose. It's Kelly calling from Morning the Murdered podcast. Oh, hello, Kelly. How are you today? I'm good. We're talking about the Glenna Krauss case, and this is very interesting because you were a juror on that case. Is that right? Yes, I was. Did you want to be part of a jury? At that time, you know, I was much younger and um, I don't want to say naive, but, you know, you have um, more faith in the world than now. That's happened three times in my life where I just started a new job and got called for jury duty. And, I mean, what are the odds? Are you serious? Yes. Even the judge couldn't believe it. Um, It happened. I was just on a a murder trial, what was it, Uh, three years ago. And we'd moved to Ocala, Florida here. And, um, I mean, it's just... It's it's crazy. I don't know. One they let me out of because I had just started, but unfortunately, on uh, Jane's case, no, I had to serve, and I was just at that time anxious about what you know. I mean, if you're holding someone's life in your hands, you want to be sure, and it was just really it was hard for me. And what was the general feel of the jury about that same question? Did they do? You, do you think they sort of felt the same way? Everyone was nervous about holding someone's uh, future in their hands. We didn't talk about it. I know. I know. On the uh, when we were sequestered, we you know we played cards. We were younger, at least that I recall. It was a younger jury, and. Um, 
No, I don't know. I didn't get that feeling. When it came to the um, the trial, how did that go? And how sort of, was there certain aspects of it that led you to feel that it, that he should be convicted? Were, were there particular aspects of it? Um, a lot of the evidence and testimony was not allowed in the trial, which is kind of hard to unhear once you hear it. Like his girlfriend, a former girlfriend, testified and how I think he had kicked her downstairs he had tied her up. He had held a gun on her. Well, none of that was a lot allowed. It would bias the mm. jury against him. And I'm thinking, but if it happened, it happened. But you couldn't do previous history. From what we heard during the trial, he just was not a good person. And... I'm glad I didn't have to make a decision because I just didn't have a good feeling about him. I, I, oh, it was, uh, I thought he was a scary individual and I was glad we didn't, you know, have to. It was strange the way the trial to me went. It's like I know there was a lot more than they were letting us hear. You could tell, but everything was inadmissible or not allowed. And I don't know. It, but it was definitely not the way I thought a trial would go. But then, you know, I thought, well, this is my really first time. You see stuff on TV. But it was, I don't know. It, it just was odd the whole thing for me looking back would you have thought that there was something you know going on that was like political or you know some sort of underlying issue happening in this trial you know i'm not aware of that i'm trying to remember the exact words uh that the judge used when he came in to tell us the trial was over because we had no idea. We were sequestered and she was testifying and they took a break because she was becoming upset. So they recessed, took a break. And who was testifying, sorry? It was his, the mother's daughter, the mother that was, killed so her daughter so his present girlfriend the one who was actually dating him or one of the other children uh the one that was dating him okay so you guys were sequestered at this point so you just come out for the trials and you go back to being sequestered so you don't really know what's happening now you're sitting in the courtroom she's testifying she gets all emotional and they take a recess is that correct yes they did okay and so what happened after that? Well, we were sitting there, and the judge walked in, which was odd. And he, I, I tried to remember his exact words, and I, I cannot for the life of me remember. It, but I remember the feeling of when he was saying what he was saying. It was like 
he said something about, I'm really sorry, you know, to have taken all your time. And I don't know if he said there was a plea bargain, but I don't believe he did. He, I think he said they couldn't go on. And he said something about, oh gosh, I wish I could remember his words. I just remember the feeling. He was confused and he said, I guess they didn't have enough evidence. And I thought that was odd, but he said that they took a six-month deal where he would take a psychiatric evaluation for six months. And I remember asking, well, that's odd. I said, if there was not enough evidence, they couldn't find him guilty. Why would his own lawyers accept such a deal? And they said, well, I can only assume they realized he needed the help. And I don't remember them saying it was a plea deal. I don't remember any of that. So whether I just don't remember it or we weren't told that, I don't know. He was, uh, she was on the phone with her mother, and apparently there was a knock on the door, and she opened the door, and then he attacked her, and that's when he killed her, or almost killed her, and I thought she heard her mother saying, Phil, Phil, his name, and I don't think, well, I'd talked to someone since then, and they had said, well, it wasn't her on the phone that heard him say Phil's name. It was the emergency when they were, you know, taking her in the ambulance. She was saying, Phil, Phil. And somehow, I, I didn't hear the ambulance part. I remember her on the phone and his name, and them saying, no, that's hearsay. That's not admissible. And I thought, how can it be hearsay if it's directly to her? I just know there was a lot more to the story we didn't hear, and I don't know why. And I don't know if it's because her daughter was unable to come back, which is, I think he walked, he had said she was, but I don't know that. He was then... You know, he needed psychiatric help. Obviously, everyone knew that, even though we weren't allowed to know that. And he would be free on the streets again. It was scary to me. The next trial I was on, you know, three years ago was totally different. And there was lots of evidence and everything was admissible. So that was more clear cut and I was comfortable with but on. Back then, it was just it was just vague and confusing to me. And and how do you feel that they made a plea deal with this murderer who who went in and killed a lady, a mother, so brutally, and then they let him off in six months? How do you feel that that was a plea deal? I'm appalled, amazed. I can't even imagine how that could have happened. There was 
almost like a slap in the face to the family, I would think, because it was just handled so mechanically. I don't know how it even happened. It was like they just didn't think it was worth pursuing him or something. It was like, oh, let's just get it over, or this is what happened, and oh, well. It was just matter-of-factly handled, and it was just, just rushed to get through just to to end it. It just ended way too quick, too easy, too convenient for, you know, my life. I know we saw pictures of her with the, um, they had said he had kicked her and and in the head. And had, but then, and, and you could see all the bruises and that was bad. But then, and I don't remember if I just cannot remember it or it didn't happen, but the murder weapon was like an African statue, a wooden statue that he beat her with. And I don't think that was ever in the trial. I don't remember hearing anything about a weapon. And you actually had to see the pictures of of um, Glenna Krebs? Yeah. Oh. So how yeah, were, the, how did they how did they do that? How did they present them and what happened? How did you feel during that? Well, I was trying to be detached because it was you know, it was someone's mother and you could tell the way everything had gone in the trial. She loved her daughter, she cared about her. She was concerned about her boyfriend being dangerous. She didn't like him. He didn't like her. So when the pictures came around, it they had shaved her head and it showed all the scars and the cuts and bruises on her head. And as I recall, mostly it was close up to that. And I just tried to detach because I it just I'd never seen anyone. You know, that had passed away. I'd never seen a dead body. I'd never really even thought about things like that. And it was, it passed the pictures around and it was just, I don't know, it's surreal almost. And how was the killer in the trial? How did he seem to be? What was his demeanor like? He was quiet. He looked like he was rehearsed because he just kind of sat pretty much like a zombie. He, he tried not to make eye contact. He, he um, I don't know, he, he just looked like there was no remorse. I mean, even had he not done it, you would think he was in contact with, you know, the mother and the daughter, you would have thought he would have been, had some feeling, but he showed no emotion, he showed nothing. Was there a moment during the trial that was particularly emotional? Just her trying to testify, her, her daughter t- trying to testify, and it was so hard on her, and you could tell, and she was trying to hold it together. You know, she was trying to, but I just, 
think had they not recessed that she would have truly, really broken down even more because it was building and building. And I just had so much empathy for her and the family. He was so violent. He, it seemed like he really hated women. I don't know. And he was so violent that I can't believe he hadn't hurt other people numerous times. He was a danger to society. And I definitely think he had a mental problem. And I really think he killed her without a doubt. There's no doubt in my mind that he did it after hearing all the evidence. If it was my mother, of course, you can't put yourself in someone else's shoes. But had it been my mother, I would have really wanted to testify and pursue it, but maybe she was afraid of him or she, you know, just couldn't go on. But it, it's, it's a shame and it's uh, a scary person. So do you think that part of the reason that the the um, the trial was cancelled was really based on the fact that she could not continue or would not continue? It seemed odd to me that she wouldn't be able to continue or wouldn't wouldn't have done that to me. Uh, so that's why just the whole thing seemed odd and off to me terribly sad case it really is you know yes it is and even after all these years it's just you just shake your head you, there's something there we just never found it and i don't know that anyone will ever uncover it i know the judge wouldn't talk about it rose is so amazed at how the trial went there was no need to come to a plea agreement None at all. With the blood in the car, all of the violence he had previously inflicted on others, including Patty, Patty's testimony regarding the phone calls she was on with her mother at the time of her murder, and the threats he had already made toward them both, the fact that someone heard Glenna say the killer's name, it is clear something is odd here. I appreciate that Rose took the time to speak with me, Being a juror, Rose had a first-hand account of this trial, a trial that had such a dire outcome, and it is very clear to her that the sentence this murderer received was inexplicable. Thank you for, you know, shedding light on all of this. It's It's a wonderful thing you do. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate that. It means a lot to me. Well, You take care. And you take care as well. Have a good day. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Three of the Krauss sisters were interviewed in this three-part series, and they all have one thing in common. They miss their mother. Tremendously. Glenna was an incredibly important part of their lives, creating a world for each of them that involved the arts a love of animals, cooking, tolerance, independence, love. The impact their mother's murder had on each Jane, Paula, and Sue varies. However, an underlying theme is clear. 
The criminal justice system so deeply failed them, it is incomprehensible. Their brother struggled for years with his need to avenge his mother's murder. He struggled with wanting to take the life of the one who took his mom's. His familial relationships all deteriorated until he had estranged himself from everyone. And in the end, he took his own life. These now-grown children have been missing something for the past 40 years. Their mother's kindness and guidance. Her love and support. Her. Sue, the second oldest daughter, was at the trial and remembers that her father was at the courthouse the day the deal was made. The deal that gave a confessed murderer only six months in jail and a thousand dollar fine. Sue recalls her father being part of a closed-doors meeting right before that fateful plea deal was made. Lois, their stepmother, remembers her husband being at his office at that time. He called her soon after the deal was made and sounded perplexed by it all as well. Whatever happened that awful day, the angst these girls feel after 40 years is proof enough that they all did not think it was a sufficient sentence. Not by a long shot. They all lived their lives and have followed career paths they chose, built homes and families. This hurt will never leave them, though. Their mother's murder provoked emotions in the five Kraus children that they never thought were lurking deep within their psyches. This series on Glenna Kraus epitomizes how much chaos can reign in families when a loved one is murdered. Deep sorrow embeds itself into one's heart, can devastate family relations, and destroy lives. Glenna's zeal for learning and education was obvious in her hard work with the Head Start program and in the ways she raised her children giving them every opportunity in life. Her desire for her children to learn and be exposed to the arts began in infancy. Glenna didn't sing Jane lullabies, but instead show tunes and love songs. How lovely. Jane is pleased to have these loving memories. Jane now reads something she wrote in conclusion. In the almost 42 years since my mother's murder, I have frequently tried to unpack everything that led up to the murder. The how, the why, why the criminal justice system failed us so badly, how it affected my family, how it affected me, my relationships, my health. And I come up with so few answers in a world that wants answers and closure and tells you to put it behind you, tells you you need to assign blame. I've tried to get as close to the truth as I can. But I know now that there are few answers. There isn't going to be closure, and I shouldn't expect it. The kind of loss with no closure, no solutions, few answers, no reason, the wound that never quite heals, never lets you forget it's there, and is easily busted open. I've come to understand that the situation was crazy, not me, that there wasn't anything I could have done. 
I believe everyone in my family suffers from some form of PTSD, manifesting itself in different ways. I have the classic symptoms, recurring flashbacks, panic attacks, racing thoughts, feelings of guilt and shame, trouble sleeping, negative self-image, depression, suicidal thoughts, and substance abuse. I was also a workaholic, but was lucky to land in a profession I was perfectly well-suited for. I find comfort and a healing connection with others who have experienced ambiguous grief and tragedies. I find ways to celebrate what remains, and I find solace in talking about it. Finding meaning elsewhere, I have tried to live the way my mother would have wanted me to live, filled with curiosity, determination, kindness, and purpose. But I'm angry. I'm angry that I the opportunity to talk with my mother about her life before she died was stolen from me. In the specter of her loss, there's so much I just don't know about her. My hope is that this story and what happened to my family will shed light on what bad decisions and their consequences do and what homicide does to the survivors who are sentenced to accepting that there are no answers. I've learned and accepted that grieving and telling this story is a form of love and that it's not what happens, it is what you do with it. Hey everyone, I just wanted to let you know that we now have a Patreon link that you can access in the episode show notes. You can contribute as little as $1 a month or send a one-time payment through our PayPal account also in our show notes, or at morningthemurdered at gmail.com. These contributions allow us to continue producing a weekly episode helping families be able to tell their loved ones' stories. I want to thank you all so much for your support, and don't forget to join our Facebook group. I'm not quite sure how people move on after a tragedy, There are support groups online and face-to-face, and there are books and family and friends to lean on. But in reality, when someone loses a loved one to murder, they lose a piece of themselves that can never be returned. Memories are all that are left. So talk about your loved one, and let the world know how important they will be to you forever. These memories become valuable treasures. No one will ever understand your pain, but surround yourself with those that can understand how important it is for you to share your story. I will now light a candle for the victim and their loved ones, ensuring their memory lives on and burns brightly. You are remembered. I want to take a moment and extend my most sincere and humble gratitude to each and every one of you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, or if you would like your voice to be heard on Morning the Murdered and tell the story of your loved one, email me at morningthemurdered at gmail.com. That's M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G-T-H-E M-U-R-D-E-R-E-D at gmail.com Thank you to Dennis for editing this podcast. You are absolutely indispensable. Thank you so much. 
A huge shout out to Patrick for creating the original music that you hear. And the artwork for this podcast was created by Talia with support from Matt and Mick. Thanks so much, guys.